What's up everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Da Vinci Cases. Alright, so this week we're going to go over a case that demonstrates how to use the history and physical exam to differentiate common pathology that affect the lumbar spine. Alright, so the way this works is there's a clinical scenario with a board style question at the end of it. Before we jump in and answer the question, we're first going to go through the case, point out the relevant clinical findings, and then go through the relevant anatomy and then use that to answer the question. Alright, so for this case we have a 68 year old gentleman. So an elderly gentleman, he presents to the clinic with severe low back pain. Low back pain is actually the most common reason for someone to visit a doctor in the United States. Back pain's radiating down both legs. So it sounds like he's got sciatica on both sides. His lower back pain had started six weeks ago and has progressed, so it's getting worse, it's not getting any better, to radiating down both legs with significant weakness and numbness of the lower extremities. So he's got sciatica, he's got significant weakness, and he's got numbness going on. So it sounds like he's, this is not your run-of-the-mill, just low back pain. This is pretty severe lumbar spine problems. He can only walk short distances because the pain in his legs requires him to stop and rest. Whenever you see this on a question stem, you want to be thinking, so he's, he, there's something that's tiring out his legs, and it can be really one of two things. It's either spinal stenosis... or peripheral artery disease. Spinal stenosis because the spinal nerve pain is so severe that he can't walk without generating a significant amount of pain that requires him to stop. Peripheral artery disease, similar to coronary artery disease. When you have narrowing and blockage of the vessels, it's cutting off perfusion to the lower extremities. And so when you exert, just like when the heart ex exerts itself and you end up developing chest pain, this is similar. This is almost like the angina of the lower extremities because they have, the legs have exerted themselves so much and they've used up all the nutrients and oxygen and they're not getting enough replenished from the blockage of the vessels. They develop pain and the patient needs to stop and rest. So long story short, you see this in a stem, you want to be thinking about these two things. Let's continue. Heating pads and NSAIDs have provided no relief for the symptoms. Heating pads and NSAIDs, that would be, if that had worked, that would mean it's more likely a musculoskeletal problem, meaning like a muscular strain in the lower back. Since it didn't work, it's tipping you away. And also these symptoms are way too severe for just some kind of muscle strain, you know, from lifting something improperly. So on the exam, he's got four out of five bilaterally for knee extension, ankle dorsiflexion, great toe extension, and ankle plantar flexion. So he's got pretty significant muscle weakness across both lower extremities. And this is paired with, as we see in the next sentence here, he has hyperreflexia of his patellar and Achilles reflexes bilaterally. So he's got significant muscle weakness throughout both lower extremities, and he's got abnormal reflexes bilaterally. So ankle brachial index, or ABI, we'll talk about this in more detail in a few slides, but it's 1.2 on the right and 1.0 on the left. So normal is actually 1.0 to 1.2. So he has normal ABI on both his right and his left lower extremities. And that points us away from PAD. Had these been abnormal, these are used as a sign of peripheral artery disease. The fact that these are normal makes us a little less suspicious for this, but let's keep going. Past medical history is notable for hypertension, hypercholesteremia. Now these two are definitely risk factors for this, but the fact this is normal and given the rest of the exam and the presentation, 
it's still not enough to convince us that it's actually PAD. He also has had prostate cancer that was treated with radical prostatectomy five years ago. So he has a history of cancer, but it was treated pretty effectively, which is not too surprising if a prostate cancer can be surgically removed, has pretty good survival, almost 100% in five years. So not too surprising. But he, the fact that he has a history of malignancy, you definitely want to keep that in mind because you could have a recurrence of that malignancy down the road. He has smoked a pack of cigarettes per day for the past 50 years, and he drinks five alcoholic drinks per day. So heavy smoker for a long time. He drinks a lot. He's got high blood pressure, high cholesterol. He's not a very healthy guy. Um, again, putting him at risk for heart disease, peripheral artery disease, cancer. Those are the things you want to be keeping in mind when you see that with these lifestyle risk factors. So let's get to the question here. What pathological mechanism is responsible for this patient's condition? So we want to know what this patient's condition is and then what's the underlying cause of that. So you got to come up with a diagnosis and then the underlying cause. So if you look at the answer choices right away, they're giving us disc herniation, metastatic spread, lumbosacral strain, and then atherosclerosis ephemeral arteries, which is basically peripheral artery disease. So the answer choices already are tipping us towards most likely a lumbar problem, and unless you really would think it's peripheral artery disease. So if you look at these two answer choices, they're actually looking for you to not only know it's a disc herniation, but differentiate which level it's at. And then if you look at metastatic spread, so you could be talking about metastasis, lumbosacral strain, some kind of muscular strain, and then again, peripheral artery disease. So, all right, so first, let's come up with a differential here. And again, they're kind of giving it to you with the answer choices. So the main thing, spinal stenosis, the presentation, the exam definitely point to this. All these problems are bilateral, which is what would tip you more towards spinal stenosis. However, you want to keep disc herniation whenever you're talking about sciatica, low back pain, peripheral artery disease. We've kind of mentioned why that's definitely on the differential. Spinal metastasis, he's got a history of cancer with back pain that's progressing. So you definitely want to keep that in mind. And then lumbosacral strain will always be down there. It's kind of at the bottom of our list. All right, so now we'll go to some teaching points, and then we'll come back and go through the answer choices and answer the question. So first, lumbar spinal stenosis versus lumbar disc herniation. So let's do a little drawing down here. So you got your vertebral body here, pedicles here, lamina like this, spinous process, transverse processes like this, spinal cord like this, and then you have the spinal nerves coming out like this through the neural foramen on both sides. So lumbar spinal stenosis is pathology that's resulting in narrowing of the spinal canal that compresses on the spinal cord. It could also be pathology that's narrowing, and when I say pathology, usually it's degenerative changes. It could also be tumors and, or trauma that cause narrowing of the neural foramen as well. And it could be the neural foramen on both sides bilaterally, and that's what gives you your bilateral symptoms. So depending on the pathology, it can comp compress the spinal cord and or the spinal nerves bilaterally. And the key difference here, again, just like cervical spinal stenosis versus cervical disc herniation in the lumbar spine, spinal stenosis causes bilateral symptoms and a disc herniation typically causes unilateral symptoms. So that's a major differentiator between the two. They're both going to have back, buttock, and or leg pain, as you can see here. Both have radiculopathy, but again, on lumbar spinal stenosis, it's going to be bilateral versus in the lumbar disc herniation, it's gonna be unilateral. We'll explain in a second why that is. Lumbar spinal stenosis could have hyper or hypoactive reflexes, and that goes back to upper motor neuron signs versus lower motor neuron signs, which is more of a neuroanatomy term, but we'll just give you a brief overview here. So upper motor neuron signs correspond to central nervous system pathology, which would be hyperactive reflexes. 
There's other upper motor neuron signs, but we won't go through those. Lower motor neuron signs, those correspond to the peripheral nervous system. Again, there's also other lower, lower motor neuron signs, but that's outside the scope of what we're talking about here. Peripheral nervous system, and that's going to be hypoactive reflexes. So it depends. It could impinge on the spinal cord, which would be more central nervous system, hyperactive. Could also impinge on the spinal nerves. That's more peripheral nervous system. So that's more hypo. So that's why I could give you either one. Muscle weakness, obviously, because it's compressing the nerves. Bilateral numbness, again, because it's compressing the nerves. And then neurogenic claudication. So this goes back to what we were talking about with the patient in our case, where he walks a short distance and he has to stop and rest. In this case, for spinal stenosis, it's because this nerve impingement is so bad and this nerve pain is so bad that he, he, when he exerts himself enough, he just can't take the pain anymore and has to stop and it's just limiting him. And that's what's resulting in him having to stop and rest. And so that's due to this se severe compression and severe pain that results from that versus peripheral artery disease where it's severe narrowing of the vessels and limiting perfusion. We'll talk more about that in a couple slides. But big thing here is, is that you're not going to see neurogenic claudication in lumbar disc herniation. It doesn't cause that because this is a result of affecting both legs. Lumbar disc herniation. So we'll draw our vertebral column here. Same structures, spinal cord, spinal nerves. And then remember, there's a disc between each vertebral body. And so the disc herniations, when there's a breakdown in that disc structure, and it's going to come out and impinge on one of the nerves on one side. And so that's what gives you all these unilateral symptoms, the pain, the unilateral radiculopathy, hypoactive reflex because it's impinging on a spinal nerve, so it's a peripheral nervous system, muscle weakness, and then numbness. But this would only be on one side. Peripheral artery disease is a generic term that really includes any vessel outside of the coronary circulation. But here we're focusing on the lower extremities, so we'll talk about PAD of the lower extremity. So it's atherosclerotic narrowing of blood vessels that perfuse the lower extremity, commonly affects the common femoral artery. So again, it's just like in the heart, you have this buildup of atherosclerotic plaque, causes inflammation, narrowing, and limiting blood flow. Risk factors for this, smoking, diabetes, dyslipidemia, hypertension, and old age. Remember, arteries tend to harden with, as we age. Presentation is intermittent claudication. So this is similar to that neurogenic claudication. However, in this case, this is analogous to angina in the heart. So it's similar to that. Because remember, angina in the heart is due to the heart working. When you exert yourself, you, you know, demand more of the heart, more oxygen, more perfusion. If you have blockage in the blood vessels in the heart, it's going to cause chest pain. Same thing here. When you start walking and you demand more of your legs to, to enable you to walk, you're demanding more oxygen, more perfusion. If there's narrowing in the blood vessel, that's cutting off replenishment of oxygen and nutrients, and so that's going to develop in lower extremity pain, and so that needs to be relieved with rest. However, if intermittent claudication is not treated, it can actually progress to the point of being critical limb ischemia. Now, this would be more so like exertional angina in the heart, and this would be or stable angina, and this would be more analogous to unstable angina, or even depending on how bad it is, it could be even analogous to an MI, myocardial infarction. So critical limb ischemia is when you have untreated claudication and it progresses to where you have rest pain, hence similar to where when you have chest pain at rest that is felt in the leg and or feet. You can also, this will lead to or progress to tissue loss via arterial insufficiency, ulcers, and gangrene. 
depending on when this is caught, this is often a vascular surgery emergency because you want to get this treated to prevent limb loss. And unfortunately, if it really progresses to a certain point, this is where patients end up having to get an amputation, unfortunately. Diagnosis, you do ankle brachial index, ABI, like we talked about on the stem. We'll talk about what that means in a second. You could you do Doppler ultrasound to get a look at the vessels, see the blockage, see the narrowing, and then you could do angiography to get a really good picture. Treatment, you do risk factor reduction, so have try to get them to quit smoking if they're a smoker, control their diabetes, medications and lifestyle changes to help with uh, high cholesterol and high blood pressure. Also, just like in the heart, instead of angioplasty, you could also do a surgical bypass. So you could do an anastomosis around the blockage like you do in the heart. ABI, so this is essentially where you measure the systolic pressure in the ankle over the systolic pressure in the arm. And you look at that ratio. So 1.0 to 1.2 is normal. Greater than 1.3 is hardening of the vessels. Once you get below 1.0, you could have some moderate disease, but really once you get below 0.5, that's severe disease, severe ischemia, arterial insufficiency. Spinal metastasis, so we'll draw our vertebral body here again with our pedicles, lamina, transverse processes, spinous process, spinal cord, spinal nerves. So this is when malignancy spreads to the spine and leads to symptoms by damaging the spinal skeleton. So you have a tumor that comes in and it can cause severe damage to the actual bony structure of the spine. It can grow to a point where it impinges on the spinal cord or, and or on the spinal nerves. And so it can cause damage to these structures. So the spine is a common site for metastasis for a number of cancers, lymphoma, melanoma, breast cancer, lung cancer, prostate cancer like in our patient, colorectal and renal carcinoma. Presentation, back pain, muscle weakness, paralysis, this depends on the severity of neurological compression. Abnormal reflexes, again, depends on neurological compression and or acute neurological deterioration. So what happens often is, is this tumor comes in, it keeps spreading, and it causes, you know, maybe some back pain, some sciatica, and then it, gener it keeps getting worse and worse and keeps growing and growing and compressing to the point where it's severely compressing the cord and severely compressing the nerves. And that's where you have this acute neurological deterioration where they develop severe muscle weakness, crazy reflexes, and that is actually a, a uh, surgical emergency. Another thing to keep in mind is that back pain is often worse at night in these patients. They not always, but commonly will have a previous history of malignancy. If someone comes in with back pain and they got a history of malignancy, especially if they've got neurological symptoms, you definitely want to be thinking about metastasis. And again, depending on the level of compression, it can lead to sciatica or spinal stenosis, depending on the level of impingement. Lumbosacral strain. So this is, you know, when someone says they threw their back out, moving something around, this is the medical terminology for that. So it's strain of the lower back muscles, so down in here. Causes physical exertion, poor form when lifting, overuse or trauma. Presentation is low back pain that does not radiate. So that's the key thing here versus sciatica, which you see in spinal stenosis or disc herniation. And it's usually following a clear causative incident. So they were improperly moving something, a weightlifting, things like that. Physical exam, they're going to have tenderness to palpation over the paraspinal muscles. So in this portion here, when you palpate these muscles, that'll reproduce their pain they will likely have a negative straight leg test. That's a test that's testing for nerve impingement. Usually for It's usually positive in a disc herniation. And so since in lumbosacral strain, since there's no neurological involvement, 
the straight leg test is, is going to be negative. Going off of that, their neurological exam will be normal. Treatment's going to be NSAIDs and then early mobilization, exercises, moderate exercise. You do not want to just sit still when you have this and or physical therapy to help as well. When a question stem says that NSAIDs and moderate exercise or heating pads in the case of our patient did not help, what they're usually telling you is that it's not a musculoskeletal strain and to look for some other cause of the pathology. So back to the case here, let's go through the answer choices. So we're pretty clear here that it's probably some kind of spinal stenosis or spinal cord impingement, spinal nerve impingement. So let's go through here. Is it, disc, is it a disc herniation? Given that his symptoms are radiating down both legs, significant weakness and numbness, he can only walk short distances because of his pain, suggesting neurogenic claudication, weakness both sides, hyperreflexia on both sides. I'm going to say that likely it's not a disc herniation. So that narrows that out. So you don't even need to bother with figuring out which level it's at because it's not likely a disc herniation. Metastatic spread. He's got a history of cancer. He's got some risk factors for cancer. He's got symptoms that are, you know, suggesting of, of potentially tumor progression to the point of where it's causing acute neurological deterioration so that we'll keep that in mind. As far as lumbosacral strain, given that the heating pads and the NSAIDs haven't provided any reliefs, it's not likely that. The other thing is that he's got too significant of a neurological exam to be that as well. So I'd say that one's out. And then lastly here, we've, we've essentially ruled this out, but just for completeness sake, atherosclerosis of the femoral arteries. He's got a normal ABI on both sides. Even though he's got these risk factors for peripheral artery disease, he's, this neurological exam would not be caused by peripheral artery disease. And the fact that his ABIs are normal on both sides also points away from that as well. So lastly here, metastatic spread along the bats and venous plexus. The USMLE's classic for this, where the answer is not so evident, because if you don't know what the bats and venous plexus is, you could question yourself on this, and that's what the USMLE loves to do. And so it's not often going to say something obvious like spinal metastasis. It's going to make you think a little harder than that. So let's go through what the bats and venous plexus is. Now on the test, you could just mark this and go on, but it's also good to, for your education just to know what this is. So what is the Batson venous plexus? It's a network of valveless veins. This is important, you'll see why in a second, that connect the deep pelvic veins, so veins draining the pelvic organs, to the internal vertebral venous plexus. So if you remember, the spinal column has these external venous plexus, vertebral venous plexuses, and then these internal. And so here on the sagittal view, here's the external here and the internal here. And so these are connecting down to pelvic veins that are draining pelvic organs. So since it's valveless, it doesn't have any kind of obstruction to flow, it can, these veins can be a route of metastasis from pelvic organs, such as the prostate or the rectum, to the spine. And so that's how you could get a prostate carcinoma that can lead to a spinal med or a, a colorectal cancer that can lead to a spinal med, both very common occurrences. Because of this lack of valves in, the, in the, the anatomy. It can also serve as a route by similar ways for infection to spread from pelvis, such as a UTI to the spinal column, which could result in osteomyelitis. That's just kind of a side note there. So coming back, it's as you can see, the answer is metastatic spread along the bats and venous plexus. What likely happened with this guy is sure his prostate cancer was removed. Unfortunately, it's come back. It started out where, you know, probably the tumor spread to the point where it invaded the, the vertebral column and it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and compressing on the spinal cord and that's what's given you these 
symptoms of you know pain down both legs, significant weakness. And unfortunately, this is a, a neurosurgical emergency where they got to go in and take the tumor out and create some room for the spinal cord here. All right, that's all I have for you this week. Make sure you check back every Wednesday for new Da Vinci cases. And then to see the corresponding video for this audio, check out our website at dviacademy.com, where you can also find PDF notes for this audio as well. Also on our site, you can find our book and video packages for anatomy and biochemistry. You can also follow us on Instagram for weekly posts and video. And then lastly, if you have any questions about the content of this video or about DaVinci Academy, put them in the comments and our team will be sure to answer them. All right, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week.